The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead on this Friday. The consumer impresses as retail sales beat expectations, but manufacturing stalls out. So is the rotation trade on or not? We'll explore that. Plus, big tech under pressure. From antitrust inquiries to possibly losing a key liability shield, we'll look at who's most at risk and who might hold up best. And a big call on CAT, the private jet tax holiday, and scrutiny on Chinese acquisitions in a very unexpected place. But let's start with the markets this hour. Dom Chu has the numbers for us. Hi, Dom. Hey, Kelly. Happy Friday. Solidly positive across the board here, but we have lost some steam. And the Nasdaq especially has lost some momentum throughout the course of the first half of the trading day. Still, though, the Dow Industrials were up 348 points roughly at the highs of the day. You can see we're up about 222 right now. The S&P 500 looking to snap that three-day losing streak up about one half of 1%. And those gains outsized for the NASDAQ have since faded. It's now underperforming the three indices. The sectors to watch, leaders and laggards so far today. Check out what's happening so far with things like real estate, also utilities, health care. All of these stocks here moving to the ups and downside. Utilities, health care, and industrials leading. And then you've got real estate and energy now lagging. So these two here Watch those in particular for weakness. Now, we've got some at least bullish commentary coming from analysts on some of the badly beaten up sectors in this market. You take a look at some of the huge declines in some of the big bank stocks this year. Wells Fargo, the worst off, and that earnings miss earlier this week did not help matters. But Deutsche Bank analysts maintaining a buy rating and then raising their target price on Wells Fargo shares. City targets also getting raised at Oppenheimer, Jefferies and Wells Fargo. And then Bank of America and J.P. Morgan, both getting upgraded by Deutsche Bank as well. So maybe a little bit of value in that beaten up sector. Turning to the oil majors, take a look at how they've performed relative to the S&P since their 2014 July all time highs. And now with oil locked right around 40 bucks a barrel for WTI, more talk about turning away from fossil fuels. Betting on these traditional energy names may seem a bit counterintuitive, but analysts at Bank of America, among others, getting more bullish thanks to cost-cutting, conservative balance sheets, and less aggressive growth forecasts with these companies. Watch ExxonMobil, Chevron, and those oil majors. Meanwhile, you've got some consumer stocks seeming to hit fresh highs every day. Certainly not the case for all of the retail and mall sector, though take a look at this smattering of names. All under pressure this year. But some analysts are giving them a boost in recent weeks with one common thread, and that is a possible extension of the economic recovery. Consumers may be really looking to get out of their houses and into theme parks, malls, or just the open road. Six Flags, Simon, Marriott, Harley-Davidson, all names that have gotten analyst upgrades. So perhaps, Kelly, there is a point at which the prices get so low that they become compelling buys. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much, sir. We appreciate it. Dom Chu, let's stick with the markets and his theme on a day with some very good news for retail sales, offset by a drop in manufacturing activity. So in the hunt for bargains, how do you separate the future winners from the value traps? Joining me now, Brian Belsky is chief investment strategist at BMO Capital Markets. And Quincy Crosby is chief market strategist 
at Prudential Financial. Welcome to both of you. And Brian, before delving into anything top level, I just want to kind of hammer this point that Dom was making. You know, tell me some of the names that you would consider to be, you know, value possible value traps that you like or, or are there any or do you stick with, you know, the winners in this kind of market environment? Well, Kelly, thanks for having us. First off, uh, I think we have to come to grips with this notion that when growth is scarce, growth outperforms. And coming out from a recession, you typically want to go with growth performers. And, oh, by the way, consumer discretionary has always been a sector that has done well just before the trough of the recession and coming out from the recession. We would still stick with three categories of growth overall, secular growth, uh, structural growth, and cyclical growth. I think a lot of people want to play these kind of cyclical growth players right now. Well, some of our favorites would be the banks and big financials, especially money center banks and brokers, stocks like J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, and Goldman Sachs. But from a growth perspective, I think you have to be really careful trying to play this value side. You know, there's a notion of a value trap, and you mentioned it as we came out into this, into this hit. And the way a value trap mm -hmm. works is you look at a P.E. ratio. You have a price on top and an earnings on the bottom. And so as earnings go down, because earnings are actually not as good as maybe you thought with that value stock, the valuation actually goes up. That's a value trap. So I think that there are select areas that are, have value trap uh, opportunities and possibilities. And that's why this whole trade into value has to be so important and really led by fundamentals. Yeah. Quincy, do you think that's where we are in this market? I mean, do you think there's, you know, we, as Don mentioned, the industrials are up today. We'll talk later. I mean, Caterpillar is at its highest level since 2018. Um, you know, and, and Brian there, he found some of the bank names that he would bet on. So where does that leave you? Well, you know, in the last segment, they talked about American Express. Uh, that one has been lagging uh, the, the credit cards. I think that's an important one because once you start to see business travel picking up, albeit uh, I don't think it'll start picking up dramatically until there is a vaccine. Uh, you're going to see American Express picking up. It, it, it works well. Uh, it's commensurate with uh, business travel, as are the airlines. That <clears throat> is taking a leap of faith that we will be vaccinated by sometime next year, most likely in the uh, third and fourth quarters. And they have been beaten up, and, and they're living on uh, you know, borrowed time, being able to get some funding to keep going. I would also mention, they mentioned Marriott, I think also you, the, uh, the hotels, uh, that also is picking up as Americans go out. But again, the vaccine is crucial for a true recovery. I would add that the consummate, consummate uh, consumer discretionary name is, for me, Disney. It encompasses everything hmm. we do from sports to cruises that I know they've moved to streaming because we're still staying home. But the fact is, once there is a sense that we are headed towards a vaccine, maybe it's Pfizer going from emergency uh, use initially and then down the road, we've got more companies coming along with the vaccine. Right. Disney gets the bid. Quincy, let me ask you this, though. So you've laid out Disney, some of the airlines, some of the hotels. Are you saying to people that you shouldn't bet on these names until there is a vaccine? Because this could potentially be a multi-speed, multi-pronged process. And I also wonder how many of the gains might already be baked in if there's going to be a little bit of buy the rumor, sell the fact, even when we finally, hopefully, get that good vaccine news. I think, you know, it's very interesting. Even as we were coming off of the March 23rd low, I started to see interest in uh, 
the cruise lines, for example, and Disney, uh, from the global sovereign wealth funds who are who can you know wait for a long time before uh, their their uh, positions start uh, manifesting themselves. But also, look, there's a barbell strategy at work. We wouldn't be completely in these names. We would be on the other side with growth. Tech is not going anywhere. I like the semiconductors, and I like big tech. I know there's concerns over the Justice Department, over the EU, but, you know, you've got names like Microsoft, and then the semiconductors, we're seeing mergers and acquisition activity, not to mention 5G and uh, a host of gaming uh, uh, semiconductor names. I would look there as well. But, you know, the, the barbell has been with the soup and cereal names and Megatech. There's room in, in the breath thrust to include some of the names that will take longer to recover. All right. So finally, Brian, tell me why, for example, a name like Lululemon makes it into your basket, a name that's had a monster year already. You know, you would think investing can't be that easy. You can't just pick the winners and say, yep, hang on to them. Well, it's not that easy. And full disclosure, we've owned Lulu for several years in our real life money portfolios for BMO. And the reason is uh, thematic investing, lifestyle investing, and and looking at consumer discretionary, a sector which has suffered dramatic declines uh, from a company perspective because of the big gorilla in the middle of the room, Amazon. This is a company that fits a structural growth in markets and fits perfectly with the mobile society theme that we've talked about for several years. And I think, quite frankly, that Lulu is is today's Levi's. Um, and going forward, there's several other areas and names in, in structural growth like NVIDIA or PayPal or, or, or secular growth like Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, uh, Netflix, Costco, they're going to continue to drive the market. From the value perspective, you know, some, a lot of these names had problems before COVID. Let's not forget that. And so I do think that there's going to be best in brand names like Marriott, Delta, and Boeing that are going to be survivors. I think you need to start thinking about that. Build a survivor basket versus just trying to buy yeah. a value basket. That, I think that'd be the best way to play it. Yep, stock picking, I know. But that's my favorite line, Lulu or the new Levi's. It's true. It's true. They're, uh, they're ubiquitous. Brian Belsky, Quincy Crosby, thank you both for your thoughts today. Appreciate it. Coming up, we're going to dig a little bit more into big tech, the whole sector under assault with Washington looking to impose new legislation. We'll look at what's at stake and the one name that could walk away unscathed. Plus, Wells Fargo says don't wait for the fundamentals to catch up. Why they think now is the time to buy Caterpillar, up 3% today. Speaking of which, here's a look at this week's biggest Dow winners. And Cat is leading the way. Walgreens, Intel, Apple and McDonald's, all with gains of 25 to 7%. We're back in a couple. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back. The fallout continues for Twitter and Facebook. The FCC announcing it's considering new rules on Section 230. That's the key legal protection for social media platforms. And antitrust probes are also looming over Silicon Valley. The House Judiciary Committee is making recommendations like stopping big tech from entering adjacent businesses or prioritizing their services. So which companies could be hit the hardest by all of this and who might be the least impacted? Joining me now on the CNBC Newsline is Jason Bazinay. He's a managing director at City. Jason, it's great to have you. And maybe let's start with who could be least affected by all the potential changes that are coming. Well, there were there were four companies mentioned in the House report, uh, Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, and Facebook. One big tech company that was notably absent was Microsoft. Um, and so that directionally is good news, I would say, for Microsoft. Among the four that were mentioned, uh, Apple at least came up the least number of times in the report. Um, so I would say that would be the area I'd focus on. I think Apple was also the only company favorably mentioned uh, in the report summary for the way that the iPhone has changed our lives. So again, to your point, uh, that might be some good news for investors. How big of a deal is this news uh, that we got from the FCC yesterday that Ajit Pai is looking at writing some rules around Section 230? What do you think is going on there? Well, I, I think the Republicans are clearly a bit concerned about what they perceive as sort of a bias with uh, some of the social media platforms. I think the, the, the rub is that Section 230 essentially gives legal uh, you know, immunity to liability for these social platform companies. And if um, the government comes out and removes that, you could actually see the paradoxical effect of more, um, more censorship, if you want to call it that, or calling of stories as opposed to less. Um, so it's, it's put the put the administration, I think, in a little bit of a quandary in terms of whatever they do with Section 230. They have to be very careful because they could make it worse rather than better. Well, I mean, it also depends on what you mean by worse. By all means, if the companies act more like traditional publishing companies, uh, that's totally in their you know discretion to do. The issue that I would ask you is if they're suddenly liable as a result for all of the content on their platforms, how can they possibly exist anything like in their current form? Well, that, that's what I mean, is that, you know, if there isn't that legal protection, then they're going to end up calling more, more stories, right? And so you're going to end up with, you know, you know, fewer, less degrees of freedom, if you will, in terms of what's allowed on social media. So whatever the administration does or the FCC, I just think they have to be careful. Um, you know, one potential thing would be to go back to something like the Fairness Doctrine, you know, where maybe there's some record of, of what's pulled down from the sites and you ensure that it's, it's you know, balanced uh, across the political spectrum, something along those lines. Right, but, here, but here's my deeper question. So if they're, to, and to your point, they may pull down more content, but we're not just talking about, you know, a couple of links here and there from some dodgy websites. What about the content that I post or that someone else posts or that someone might, the kind of vitriol that Twitter and Facebook can sometimes be filled with, all of a sudden, if they're liable for, forget the post sharing that's coming from any kind of news organization, I'm just talking about the, the harmless posts that people might put up about one another. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is why you can't really weigh in on this. I mean, you know, I don't think the intent of uh, the government is to sort of shut down social media as, a, as an entity. Um, so there has to be some crafting of the legislation or changes in the regulations that sort of, you know, strike narrowly at the, at the perceived issue without harming the businesses. But it's a, it's a, it's a so narrow, you mentioned it's a off the top, 
Yeah, no, I, I think this is tricky. So you said you think Apple and Microsoft might be the least affected. Microsoft, because it wasn't even included uh, in the House's report. Um, who might be most affected then by the changes that are coming? And do you think the biggest changes would come on the antitrust side, um, you know, or on the Section 230 side? Well, the House report was really around antitrust. And I think the, the big thing that matters most about this is any money manager that's, let's say, under 65 years old, has lived under a world where all of antitrust law was undergirded by consumer welfare. In effect, corporations could pursue M&A, they could pursue their strategy, and it was allowed as long as it resulted in lower consumer prices or something that was better for the consumer. Um, what, the, what the House report hints at is really rolling the clock back 40-plus years more towards structuralism, which is really the antitrust laws that existed from the 1920s until the 70s, which essentially says big is bad. And that, that is a radical, radical change. It's something that the DOJ and FTC have pushed back against. Those are the two expert agencies that enforce our antitrust laws. Um, this has been kicking around in academic circles for a number of years, but, you know, this is the first report that's really come out of one, you know, half of the legislative branch that has begun to in, in embrace at least some elements, potentially, of a return to structuralism. It would be a very, very big change. Through that lens, I think the company that would probably be the most impacted, and it was the company that was mentioned the most in the report, is Alphabet. Alphabet, the parent company of Google. So my final question for you is, why haven't shareholders reacted in a bigger way? Granted, uh, Alphabet shares have not done great this year, um, but big tech in general, it's not like we these reports come out or even the back and forth this week with Facebook and Twitter. I mean, the shares were down 2% yesterday. That's, that's nothing uh, given the scope of what we're discussing. Why do you think that is? You know, what's the old Wall Street adage? Uh, you know, being early and being wrong are indistinguishable, right? And I think the buy side appropriately has looked at these potential changes and said whatever is going to happen, it's still, you know, a, a period away. We need to see, you know, real changes in the regulations. We need to see real changes in the laws. And I, I think that's just not imminent. And so I think the buy side is, is, is probably inferring that whatever the House has recommended will likely get watered down, you know, when it comes into a, an actual bill and may get watered down even further before it gets passed into law. And so that, that's why I think the reaction has been somewhat muted. It's just long dated. Yeah, like you said, they all think they can get out in time, too, if that's the case. Jason, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Complex issue, but you broke it down, and we're very much grateful for that. Je Jason Bazinet from Citigroup. Thank you. Coming up here, Jeffrey's telling investors it's time to bite into Chewy, as COVID-proof consumers are willing to spend big on their pets. We've got the details with Chewy up 4% today, plus a look at the government's surprising new concern about where Chinese money is being invested in the U.S. We have a CNBC investigation you don't want to miss. We're back in a couple. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com slash music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings, and voila! 
Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. Welcome back to The Exchange. The markets are off their session highs, but only by a little. The Dow is up about 350 uh, at the highs of the day. We're up 236 right now. And the Dow is the outperformer. It's up eight-tenths of a percent, while the S&P is up half a percent. And the Nasdaq is lagging just a little bit shy of that. In terms of sectors, Dom mentioned it off the top, but it is utilities, healthcare, and industrials today. We're going to talk more about Caterpillar in a bit. And lagging right now, you have energy and real estate. Here are some of the individual movers this hour. In Bed Bath & Beyond, what a story this one's been. It's higher again. The shares are now up 20% this week, and they have doubled in just the past month. It's now a little over $25, 2.5% today. Zoom is also ending the week on a good note with a double-digit gain. Shares are up nearly 40% in a month, and now more than 700% for the year. Zoom's at 562. And shares of J.B. Hunt are the worst performer in the S&P after missing profit expectations, although revenue was above forecast. The company's income taking a hit due to higher wages and tech spending. JBHT down 8% today. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Good to see you. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. Italy's daily count of new coronavirus cases crossed 10,000 on Friday. It is the first time that country's daily tally rose above 10,000 since the pandemic outbreak began. In a rare move, the Trump administration rejecting California's request for disaster relief funds. Those funds were aimed at cleaning up damage from California's recent wildfires. The Indianapolis Colts will now reopen their practice facilities this afternoon. This after the team shut down its facilities this morning after four individuals inside the organization had tested positive for the coronavirus. The Colts say the individuals have been retested and the test came back negative. And take a look at this. After 196 days in the hospital due to complications from COVID-19, Michigan woman Deanna Hare finally got to go home on Thursday. Family and friends gathered outside the University of Michigan Hospital to wish her well. And we wish her a very speedy recovery. You are up to date, Kel. That's the news update this hour. Back to you. Sue, and that's the thing about this whole pandemic. You have some people who get and literally are completely asymptomatic and yes. others who are in the hospital for 200 days. Yep, almost 200 days. She's actually one of the longest uh, inpatient uh, patients from COVID-19. She has a long road ahead of her. She has to have a lot of rehab and physical therapy and things like that. But um, it, it, this virus is a beast, an indiscriminate beast. It's yeah. just awful. She's but we try tough. and bring the good news on it. All so. right, Sue. Hey, absolutely. We appreciate it. Sue Herrera, thank you, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Let's take Get to shares of Pfizer and Germany's BioNTech right now. They're movers today. In an open letter, Pfizer's chairman and CEO says their COVID vaccine, uh, their candidate, is being developed by both drug makers. It could be ready for emergency use authorization application by late November. Pfizer and BioNTech are scaling up manufacturing capability for the vaccine as well. Both companies have said they'll be able to deliver the doses they've already agreed to provide to governments around the world. But BioNTech CEO says there will be a struggle to provide it more widely. Again, a lot riding on Pfizer. They're the first one, hopefully, to come out with this. Shares of both companies up more than 3%. Still ahead, Chewy getting a millennials upgrade. Private jets fly off a tax holiday and families get the star treatment. It's all in rapid fire. The exchange is back right after this. 
Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here with me today, Mike Santoli, Contessa Brewer, and Robert Frank. Welcome, everybody. And first up, Caterpillar shares are at their highest level since January 2018 on an upgrade to overweight at Wells Fargo. The firm upping its price target to a street high $220. They're citing earnings upside ahead from the ongoing building and home improvement boom. And sales of new single-family homes did hit a 14-year high in August, while new home improvement projects, of course, have been serving, surging during the pandemic. Cat shares are up about 50% in the past six months. Mike, it's also interesting. They're saying don't wait for the fundamentals to kind of show up. You can bet on it now. They're getting over their skis on this one? Well, exactly. And that, that piece of the logic jumped out at me as well, Kelly. I don't know about over their skis. I think it's more just a concession to how these global cyclical stocks tend to trade, which is as soon as you start to see you know, the global purchasing managers index and leading indicators go up and manufacturing start to revive around the world, the stocks sort of anticipate it. And, and I think the big argument is, has you know, Caterpillar shares already more or less built that, uh, that kind of an environment? It's already kind of 25 times forward earnings. And of course, the analyst says, yeah, but it could get up to 30 as we wait for earnings to come through. Robert, I thought it was interesting. I mean, here's a name people usually associate with infrastructure plays. In the past, it was the mining boom. And today, everyone's predicate or this call is predicating it on the home improvement. I mean, literally on these on, on this equipment, kind of digging up new home construction. And that's a newer thing for Caterpillar here. Yeah, it was home improvement, but it was also energy and mining. And look at oil prices. I mean, they're stronger, but it's it's hard to see a massive unexpected recovery in the energy sector that is not priced into the stock, which is already, as Mike just pointed out, really expensive at 30 times forward, which is what this analyst says it could get to. I mean, that's like tech stock valuation for a company that makes tractors and haulers and you know, things for industries that I just don't know that a home improvement or home recovery is going to be enough to drive that stock to 30 times but, forward earnings. But look. Yeah, guys, though, the analyst was pointing out there's all this time and energy and effort that's being spent on the domestic construction picture. And he says you're missing the whole point that the leading economic indicators, the commodity prices are increasing, that this is a global recovery picture and that that's where the focus should be now. True. And in that sense, it's maybe good news for everybody and the industrials leading the way today. Cats up like 7 percent this week. And it's been hitting these kind of high since 2018 on a rolling basis for a while now. So maybe it's finally ready to break out here. It'd be good. Like you said, Contessa, good for everybody. Speaking of cat, let's talk about a different kind of cat, shall we? Uh, shares of Chewy uh, surging today after an upgrade to buy at Jefferies. The firm hiking its price target to 100 bucks, saying that digitally affluent millennials are adopting more pets, and that's a growth opportunity. Uh, that trend has legs. A recent survey from TD Ameritrade found 33% of Americans considered fostering or adopting a new pet during the pandemic. And millennials led the way 50% said they considered adopting a furry friend during lockdown. Chewy has been on a tear. It's up more than 130% this year. Contessa, what do you make of it? Well, new adoptions and three quarters of the people who adopted a pet during this pandemic, I call them pandemic pets, are younger than 44 <laughs> years old. I mean, here's the analyst pointing out that humanization and premiumization, that's their word for it, <laughs> is driving this growth. What and kind of dog is that? This is my dog. She's a dappled dachshund, but she was my firstborn, Kelly, and she's my dog tur. And I'm one of those people they're talking about, although... I don't get chewy because I consider a trip to the pet store uh, my big outing for the week.
dappled dachshund. We had a cat, cat uh, for a year that's as long as the cat lasted. Hopefully the kids will make it longer than that. Mike, what would you add? Well, I was going to say, <laughs> you know, you wonder if people are going to have uh, adoption remorse necessarily after after this pandemic period. I don't, you know, wish this on anybody. But, you know, after Easter, there's a lot of, uh, you know, chicks and rabbits, uh, you know, on offer out there because it's and, and, and part of this oh. report, part of this report uh, was that 40 to 45 percent of new pet owners found it was more expensive than they expected, uh, to which I say, what were the other 55 or 60 percent thinking? Because it, it pretty much always right. costs more than you it's, think. Well, and it's, it's more expensive, Mike, expensive. because you know what, the, number, ahead, you know what the, the, the number one seller on Chewy is a dog food called Taste of the Wild High Prairie Dog Food. And Kelly, I think this stuff costs even more than that breakfast cereal that you love. This stuff is $52 Just a bag. Got box. So the only thing more expensive, yeah, so the only thing more expensive than this stock at $28 billion market cap is the stuff they're selling. Good for them. The margins on a $52 bag of dog food must be crazy. And by the way, I would say on the stock yeah. itself, it's a great example of a company that really is, has the luxury of not having to show profitability for the next couple of years to come because they, they have the right demographic and they're in a large and growing market in a digital approach. And, and right now, the market's willing to give you credit for, for just those things. Worry about the profits later. Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, Chewy shares up more than 4% today, 10% in the past week. And like we said, they more than doubled this year. Um, up next, it's not quite the industry you would expect to get relief from the CARES Act, but private jet companies are apparently taking advantage of a tax holiday tucked in the bill. It was meant to take the strain off the industry during the pandemic, but instead has created a windfall that could reward wealthy flyers for decades. Robert, this is fascinating because tell me about how people are snapping up all of these ride shares. Yeah, so normally when you take a private jet flight, you pay a 7.5% tax. Well, as part of the CARES Act, they gave a tax holiday on that for any uh, fare that you buy that's before in, in 2020. So, But what they didn't really realize is that in the private jet world, you can buy jet cards with, let's say, 100 hours on them, and there's no expiration date. So what, what the companies are doing now are selling these massive jet cards with, let's say, 50 or 100 hours on them, and you don't have to take the flight in 2020. You can take it four or even 10 years from now. So all these wealthy flyers are stocking up on jet hours tax-free. They're not going to take the flights this year. They're going to take them years from now. And the question is, should taxpayers be subsidizing private jet flights that don't even happen during the pandemic but might happen five or 10 years from now? But it's been a boon to the industry How? and a boon to flyers that now can buy all these hours without paying a tax. Robert, how dire are things for the private jet industry, which, I, again, I realize sounds like an oxymoron just to talk about. Like, if it gets bad enough, no one gets a private jet, no one's crying. But, you know, like, is it is it so bad that this kind of incentive can ensure a viable future or something? Or to, what's it like? Because I thought people were flying more in private jets because they didn't want to be on regular planes. Well, that's the irony here, Kelly, is that, look, they got all this money because the general aviation business, which includes private jet, supports over a million jobs. And that was the spirit with which this money was given. But the private jet industry, to your point, both for health reasons and because of the sort of dual class nature of this recovery, has recovered to about 80 to 85 percent of normal capacity in the past couple of months. So commercial aviation is down to like 20 or 30 percent. Private jets are 80 to 85% of back to normal. So they recovered really quickly, which 
adds to the questions of why they got this tax break, but also the more than $600 million that they got in addition to this in support from CARES, PPP, and all the other programs. Contessa, what would you add on this? Well, I mean, is it welfare for rich people? I, I don't know. This just seems, it, it seems misplaced, misguided. And I think that there's a lot of people who are hurting right now. The people standing in food lines listening to this story are probably wondering, you know, why do these guys get away with not paying taxes on what really is a, yeah. an issue for rich people? Yeah, a luxury. I know. All right. Finally, before we go, lockdown safety requirements and production limits. It all means that producers are having to get pretty creative to find actors for their new commercials these days. According to The Wall Street Journal, directors are turning to their own families for starring roles in ads now, including in this recent ad for Pillsbury Cookies. Documentary style ads were on the rise even before the pandemic, but this is taking authenticity to a whole new level, guys. Mike, frankly, I kind of love it. I mean, it just feels like something interesting could happen. You know, when, when you can't plan everything to the T, yeah. I, I don't know, maybe it'd be a better viewing experience. I mean, was that a kid just painting a director's real dog? I mean, that was in that clip right there. It's kind of fun. Um, I, you know, I do think it also resonates in a different uh, way, Kelly, which is that people uh, already are now used to seeing so much amateur socially shared video. Uh, and it looks natural and it's not high production value. And back in the golden age of TV commercials, everything wanted to look like a sitcom or a news broadcast. It wanted to look like the TV it was interrupting. And right now, I feel like it almost is right in tune with the moment of being a little more improvised and seeming like it's more spontaneous. So it fits even outside of the necessity value of it. Robert, I chuckled when I, I read the like story because I the director said he was... He, he was worried that his kids had to eat 52 cookies for, in order to shoot the Pillsbury ad, so he, he spread it over three days. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say if there are any casting agents out there that want two teenage daughters that are really good at the sarcastic eye roll and the sullen teenage <laughs> face, I can give them my number. <laughs> Contessa, last word. I, I just don't want to see any storytelling with uh, Zoom boxes on it. I'm done with that, over it, don't want to see it. Two, if you get really desperate, you don't even have to pay your dog. <laughs> I know. Let's see that little little guy one more time, the dappled dachshund. I didn't even know in that was a chewy commercial. Breed. We She's, want Contessa's uh, dog in a she, chewy yeah, commercial. Yeah, she, she, burrowed, she burrowed back under her blanket right away. She's like, why are you waking me up for this? Guys. So sweet. We needed that. Did Mike Santoli, Contessa Brewer, Robert fire? Frank, thank you all. We appreciate it. You can be the winner today. <laughs> Coming up, a new CNBC investigation reveals new concerns about Chinese acquisitions in a very unexpected area. We'll have those details. Eamon Javers will have the full story for us. Eamon? Yeah, Kelly, that's right. The Department of Justice is telling us they've got a surprising concern about Chinese investment money flowing into the United States and where it's going. I'll have all the details on that when we come back on CNBC. Welcome back. Tensions between China and the U.S. are on the rise as the two countries cancel visas, close each other's consulates, and accuse each other of mishandling the COVID-19 virus. Now the U.S. government has identified a new threat from the Chinese, and it's coming from a place you might least expect, fertility clinics. Eamon Javers is here now with a CNBC investigation impacting some of the most intimate decisions a family can make. Eamon? 
Yeah, Kelly, that's right. You know, CNBC has learned that the U.S. government has used a secretive government process to actually stop a Chinese company from buying an American fertility clinic. But why would the government want to do that? Well, we went to the Department of Justice for some answers. John Demers heads the National Security Division of the Department of Justice, making him one of the country's top spy hunters. Your genetic material, your biological material is among the most intimate information about you, who you are, what your vulnerabilities may be, what your illnesses have been in the past, what your family medical history is, etc. And again, that can be used from a counterintelligence perspective to either coerce you or convince you to help uh, the Chinese. Our investigation has found four of the roughly dozen fertility clinics in the San Diego area have investors with links to China. Fertility treatments are hugely popular in China after the repeal of the one-child policy there. And Chinese customers have flocked to American clinics, which are seen as among the best in the world. Take the case of HRC Fertility in California. One of its offices is in Oceanside, just a 14-minute drive from the front gate of Camp Pendleton. There's no way to tell from its offices or website, but the fertility clinic's ownership history is global and extremely convoluted. In 2017, management rights to HRC Fertility were purchased by an investment entity in the British Virgin Islands that was in turn owned by a Chinese coal company. Later, a new entity took the company public on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So why would a Chinese coal company want to buy a U.S. fertility clinic in the first place? HRC tells us the coal mining subsidiary was merely a convenient investment vehicle, and the company says it's engaged in significant restructuring to allay China-related concerns, including keeping all U.S. patient data on servers inside the United States. And as for the clinic being located near a U.S. military base, the company calls that a meaningless coincidence. But it's the kind of transaction that can be concerning to the U.S. government. So what if you saw a subsidiary of a Chinese mining company buying an American fertility chain? Would that be a red flag to you? Well, without obviously commenting on any individual transaction, that's the kind of dissonance that would be very interested to us. In a statement, HRC told us in part, the company complies with all relevant federal and state laws and regulations regarding patient data security. We take patient information and data security seriously and do not share any patient information with our parent company. In fact, we go beyond the requirements and use third-party experts to confirm the security of our patient data on a regular basis. It's a big global economy. Why should we say there's anything wrong with the Chinese buying American companies? Well, what we're worried about is the use that they make of the data. If all they were doing was then running that company as a going concern and earning the profits from it, that would be fine. What could they do with it? Demers says there are some terrifying possibilities. The worst case would be, and I'm not saying that we've seen this, but the worst case would be the development of some kind of biological weapon. Really? If you had all of the data of a population, you might be able to see what that population is most vulnerable to. Mira Ricardel, the former deputy national security advisor, told CNBC CFIUS, the highly secretive Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, located in the Treasury Department, has already taken action. Has the federal government ever blocked the acquisition of a fertility clinic in the United States by the Chinese? I, I believe they have. Again, these are not things that are reported. It's a confidential process, but I understand there's been at least one case. 
And Kelly Sifius does have the power to force existing companies to divest of their ownership if they decide that that's a national security concern. There's no indication, though, that that consideration is underway here. But we do know uh, that at least one company was blocked from being acquired by a Chinese entity. Kelly, back over to you. Yeah, I mean, the, this is kind of terrifying. Um, just going back to kind of what they could do with this information and the reality that right now it sounds like people just don't have any evidence that there's anything nefarious going on. I also wonder, Eamon, if this is so much about targeting the U.S. or, to your point, if there are a lot of Chinese using U.S. fertility clinics, are they also trying to monitor what Chinese citizens are up to? Right. And look, there's two concerns here and there's two things going on. Right. And on the one hand, there is this enormous wave that's been building over the past several years of Chinese customers coming to the United States for fertility treatment. And so to some extent, the Chinese customers themselves are at risk for any identity theft that might unfortunately happen. Uh, but what the U.S. government is worried about is, in addition to that, uh, any U.S. customers who are getting caught up in that and their data uh, being transported back to China. We haven't seen any evidence that that's happened, but that's a possibility that the government's concerned about. And a lot of their CFIUS enforcement now in terms of national security acquisition concerns about American companies is really focused on this issue of data. Now, we used to think of CFIUS as being concerned with, you know, American defense contractors. Could a foreign company come in and buy Boeing, that sort of thing. Now, though, they're really turning to this question of data, who controls it, where is it going, and that's a much trickier problem. Yeah, it's fascinating. Frightening. Uh, great reporting. Eamon, thank you for bringing it to us. We appreciate it. Eamon Javers for Thanks, us today. Still ahead, bikes have been a booming business during the pandemic. And on the day he lost his job, one entrepreneur launched a pop-up shop to capitalize on it. We talked to the founder of Backyard Bicycles next. And remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back right after this. Welcome back. The transport's hitting an all-time high at the open today before falling slightly. And the sector's been on a pretty bullish ride on pace for its third straight positive week and its fifth up in the last six now. The Dow Jones Transportation Index is up 21% in the past three months. And the three biggest winners are FedEx, up 71% during that time. It also hit an all-time high today. UPS is up 46% in the past three months and hit an all-time high on Tuesday. And Matson is up 35% in the past three months and is at, wow, up 111% off of its 52-week lows. Speaking of transportation, bicycles have become one of the hottest forms during the pandemic, making it nearly impossible to find one these days. My next guest launched a mobile bike repair shop in April after he was laid off. And by the time his old employer offered him his job back, business was going so well that he declined in order to focus full-time on his startup. Joining me now is Ian A. Strike, the founder of Backyard Bicycles in Madison, Wisconsin. Ian, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Hey, thanks so much, Kelly. I appreciate you having me on the show. When you started this, did you think it had the possibility to work as a business, or is it just a way to get some income for a couple days? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it was the pandemic was sort of looming over our fitness business. Um, so I definitely knew we were going to close, and I didn't want to sit around and do nothing. So, actually, the, the fitness uh, participants were kind of my first clients, and it was sort of just one-offs. I'd go to their house. I'd tune up a bike here and there. So just some cash here and there. Um, but then I was in neighborhoods realizing that the whole neighborhood could use a tune-up. As you said, bikes are crazy booming, and you just couldn't get into bike shops with a fast turnaround. So then I started doing neighborhood pop-up shops where I'd kind of just set up shop, 
um, in somebody's driveway for the day. And then neighbors can just walk up and get their bike tuned up with the same day turnaround. And that's kind of the concept that took off. Yeah, so 75 bucks for a same-day bicycle tune-up. You've done more than 600 of them. You invested one or $2,000. This is now $15,000 in the business, and you're going to take some of the off-season now to kind of come up with your business plan for next year. What happens if this biking boom or this bicycling boom, Ian, was a one-time pandemic thing? You know, it was the perfect time to launch this neighborhood pop-up shop um, because everybody was home, right? Like, rather than it's just working on a weekend, now they're home all week. But as you said, of course, as the pandemic starts to kind of quell, people will return to work. I'm planning on pivoting, hiring on new employees, and then offering um, workplace pop-up shops. So even if you're not home, you can bike your bike to work, have it tuned up while you're at work, and then you have the bike back by the time you're done with the work day. Um, So doing things like that and also partnering with local businesses, I think, is a really good way to stay relevant. That's super clever. Tell me what happened with losing your job, what's going on in the fitness industry, and would you go back? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, here in Wisconsin, basically, it was a mandate that we had to close. Um, so I lost my job, and it was it was this understanding that I would be able to come back. I kind of just didn't want to <laughs> sit around in my hands for a couple months. Um, would I go back? I actually have a, my bachelor's in kinesiology um, so I love movement. I love exercise. And certainly if something presented itself, um, I'd love to go back to training at some point. However, this just owning my own business now, honestly, I don't think I'd go back to training. Uh, working for somebody, I'd probably start my own thing since I have a, a taste for this entrepreneurial spirit. And was this the first time that you tried something? How nervous were you about launching it at a time like this? You know, I've tried a couple of smaller endeavors in the past, um, like a, a mobile tea delivery service, kind of a monthly subscription thing. This is the first one that I really kind of invested in, but it was, it was so, it felt low risk just because I was laid off. I knew that in a couple months, or hopefully I knew that the gym was going to open back up. So if this didn't work out, that was all right. It wasn't like I just dropped and quit uh, my job. So in that way, I mean, I, I was I was grateful for the opportunity to start my own business. It seems weird to say I was grateful to be unemployed, yeah. um, but it was a great time to do it. And so, no, it didn't feel very risky. It kind of just started slow and it organically built by itself. And now I'm just super humbled and grateful. Well, Ian, thank you so much for joining us to tell your story today. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much, Kelly. Ian A-Strike is the Backyard Bicycles founder. That does it for us on The Exchange today, but stick around for Power Lunch. Shares of Gilead are lower after the World Health Organization said remdesivir has little to no effect in reducing COVID deaths. We'll have the latest details on what that means for the future of the drug and the company. I'll join Tyler Matheson after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com slash music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel.